The following is a sermon from the church at Cherry Dale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. All right, Genesis 37 is our text. We've got some work to do this morning. I will be honest, uh, as we kind of finish 2019, uh, this morning's sermon is, uh, was probably the most difficult to prepare uh, that I've had thus far this year. Sometimes sermons are difficult to prepare because you get dealt a difficult topic. Uh, you're covering something that's a bit of a spicy meatball, and you're like, I'm not really sure how to bring this to bear on the congregation. Other times you get a passage that's not all that spicy, but it's just challenging to figure out what do you do with it? How do you exhort the congregation with it? Particularly if we think about uh, the way we set up this series, that we want sermons that engage our minds, that activate our hearts, that encourage us to love Christ, that mobilize our feet, that push us to do something, and then inspire our mouths, give us something to talk about. What we get in this story is difficult to handle to that end. One of the reasons this text is difficult is because there's a sense at which the Joseph story is not meant to be analyzed in chapter segments. There's a sense that we saw this already last week, that we're driving to kind of a macro conclusion, Genesis 50, 20, what man meant for evil, God purposed for good. And Joseph's story is really best understood as one complete whole. There's a challenge of like evaluating a movie versus evaluating various chapters in that movie. And that's a bit of what we're doing this morning. The story seems best when all the pieces fit together. And there's a sense at which the author shows us that this is his purpose in writing this story because we get these threads that are telling us that something is moving forward. If you were with us last week, you remember the end in verse 11 there where the the father heard these dreams and we're told that he remembered them. This is a bit of foreshadowing, kind of the note that something's going to happen that's going to bring these dreams to pass. Notice in verse 36 of this morning's text, the end of the passage that Brandon read, the end of the chapter. Uh, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. Now, we who know how these stories are pieced together, we're like, all right, that's playing us forward to something that's going to happen in the subsequent chapters, and that's going to help all this make sense. So what we're doing is a bit forced this morning, is analyzing a story that's meant to be told as a whole. But that's not the only thing that makes this chapter difficult to think about. There's little mention of God in the chapter at all. Except when we see, kind of zoomed out, this invisible hand of God that's active, the dreams that we would say is a demonstration of God's activity in the life of Joseph, and his purposeful providence in the stories. But we're not told, specifically in chapter 37, God doing very much. And to make matters worse, there's no noble character in this story. Like in a a week from now, when we look at Genesis 39, we're at least going to get an example of Joseph fleeing from sexual immorality that we can be like, hey, be like Joseph in this. But we don't get that in this story. No one in this chapter is exemplary. There's no place where it says you should do this or be like this person. It's just a descriptive chapter of what's happening. 
So what do we do with it? How do we think about Genesis 37? I think the best way to approach this chapter is to consider it from the negative. And to say, what can we learn from this chapter about some of the negative examples that we see, though we recognize that hovering behind this is a God who can use negative example to fit together to accomplish his purposeful plan. If you remember last week, I gave you five kind of meta themes from the Joseph story. And one of those was speaking about sin's effects on human relationships. And this is the grid I want us to consider chapter 37 from. How do we see the devastating effects of sin on human relationships? Unless we think, well, this is kind of incidental to my life. I would say, I would suggest to you that this is like really central to your life. Specifically, if you're considering how do I faithfully walk with Jesus in a world that for all of us is filled with a whole bunch of other people, right? It's like the difference in saying, how do I uh, drive my car and navigate my car uh, by myself? Like, how do I keep the, the wheels functioning? How do I make sure it's mechanically tuned in? Like, I can tell you the top speed of a Honda Odyssey minivan, 118 miles per hour. Now, I know that the, the mileage thing's going to tell you something greater than that. You know how I know? Because I got to drive on the Great Salt Flats when we were in Salt Lake City uh, last, uh, last summer. And I got to max out my Honda Odyssey minivan on the Great Salt Flats going as fast as I could. I mean, I was standing on the pedal and 118s as fast as that puppy would go. That was beautiful because there was nobody else around. There were no other cars. There was nothing. It was just a salt flat that I was driving on. Okay, it's pretty easy. I've just got certain responsibilities. Well, if we think about navigating our Christian life that way, if it was just us, it would be one thing, but it's not. We're navigating this thing called following Christ in the context of an interstate filled with a whole bunch of other people and a whole bunch of other frustrating people. So how do we see the tension of human relationships played out in this story? Let's note the progression that we see demonstrated in Genesis 37 of how these relationships are reflected. A biblical progression. I'll give you four steps that we see in Genesis 37. First, we encounter some very real tension. So if you're taking notes, you can just say, big header, biblical progression, first point, tension. We get some real tension in the story. Let's rewind the tape back to the beginning of 37. In verse 3, we read this. Now Israel, that's kind of substitute name for Jacob here throughout the story. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age and he made a robe of many colors for him. Then down in verse 6, Joseph speaking here says to his brothers, listen to this dream I had. There we were, we were binding sheaves of grain in the field and suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And they ask in verse 8, are you really going to reign over us? His brothers ask him, are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more because of the dream and what he had said. Verse 9, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he told his father and his brother, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is that that you've had? He said, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground because of you? We're introduced in this story 
to some legit sources of relational tension. Some real reasons to be wounded. Consider, there's a number of them. One, we're introduced to all sorts of broken relationships in this story. Look back at the introduction to verse 37. We're told that Joseph is out working in the field with two of his father's wives, the two slave women that he's produced some children with. Not only that, but we're told that Jacob's love for Joseph is attributable to the fact that Joseph and Benjamin were the children of his old age, the children given to him by his favored wife. If you remember the struggle previously between Leah, the bad wife, and Rachel, the good one, we're introduced here to tension that predates Joseph in many ways. A family struggle that is generational in form. Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin, and thus, Jacob's unique affection for Rachel's kids, these two, Benjamin and Joseph, that is distinct. We're introduced in the text to broken relationships that are generational in nature. We're also introduced to the father's affection. He loves one more than the others. Legit reasons for tension. We're told that this demonstrates itself in giving of a coat, a coat of many colors. Many of you play acted this on flannel graph boards as kids. This singles him out as the object of his father's affection. Interestingly, a coat that's not given to the others. Again, real reasons to be wounded. Later in the text, Jacob is going to send Joseph out to check on the brothers in a distant land. And we read this story play out and we're like, come on, dude. Like, you love them more. You've got to know they hate him. You gave him a coat and now you're going to send him out into the field to check on the boys? What do you think is going to happen? We're told that Joseph brings back a bad report about them. We're not told why. Maybe they're actually doing bad work. Or maybe Joseph's just a tattletale who comes back from the field and just likes to run down his brothers. We're not told. And then we're told the snippet of the dreams, these pairs of dreams throughout, so that the brothers would bow down and so too would the entire family. I don't know about you, but if you were on the receiving end, if I were on the receiving end of hearing these dreams, these would be real reasons to be wounded. And so what do they do? The second step in our progression. This tension sparks hatred. Sparks hatred. Verse 4. When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. In verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And then down in verse 11, we're told the source of their hatred. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. When the brothers saw this love, when they heard these dreams... They hated their brother. This language brings back images from the early story. Remember, Leah, he hated. We see this 
theme of the language progressing. Jacob's family had been marked by relational strife, and now it plays out again in this strong word, denoting something that other biblical authors are going to use in reference to God's perspective to sin, his hatred of sin. This is strong. They hate their brother. And what does this hatred produce? It produces what the wisdom writer in Proverbs 10, 12 tells us hatred produces. Hatred stirs up strife. This is what hatred always does. It leads to deception. So if you're tracking with my progression, tension produces hatred, which leads to deception. They're going to do something. They're going to act out on their hatred because hatred stirs up strife. So in verse 12, his brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, they're pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm going to send you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. And then Israel said, go see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. Verse 18, skip down to 18. And they saw him, this is the brothers viewing Joseph, they saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh look, here comes that dream expert. I love this rendering in the, in the CSB, this dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him, throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams So we're let in on the brothers' plots. We're let in on what their hatred stirs up in them. A mob mentality that results in, let's kill him. Interestingly, the coat that singled him out as the source of his father's affection now marks him as the object of their hatred. See that coat, let's get him. And their motive is explicitly stated. We're going to take him out and those dreams, they're never coming to pass. Now, I want you to notice, let's press pause here for a moment of consideration. Notice what hatred stirs up. It says, I'm going to fix the source of tension by taking matters into my own hands. I'm going to fix the source of tension, real tension, relational friction, by taking matters into my own hands. And in the face of this, one of the brothers, Reuben, breaks rank. He says, this is too much. Let's don't lay our hands on him. Again, word language that brings back to mind the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, where we're told there, don't lay your hands on the boy because there is a ram caught in the thicket. Here is the brother voicing these words. Don't lay a hand on him. We can rid ourselves of him without murdering him and incurring the penalty, Genesis 9 four through seven that would come from killing him and this story as it progresses here we're we're let in on the scene of all this tension and it just continues to move now again I want to connect for you some previous scenes if you remember back in the story of Jacob and Esau their relational tension and strife back in Genesis 32 there we see when they're about to face off Things are about to get really combative what happens. An angel of the Lord comes, the beginning of 32, and stops them, softens the conflict, and prepares them for reconciliation. Here, there's no angel stopping this. 
It just continues to roll on unabated. Verse 23, Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. They took him and they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty without water, maybe an allusion to the coming famine um, that's down the road. And they sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And they say, what, what do we do, verse 26? What do we gain if we kill our brother and they cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to these Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When the Midianite traders passed by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Forward-facing, uh, when, when we get this scene of reconciliation that happens later in Genesis 42, the brothers admit some of the heightened tension that's playing out here. They said to each other, obviously, this is Genesis 42, 21, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. So, Joseph is in deep distress, pleading with his brothers, and they say, we're going to sell him. At this point in the story, we're a long way from home, situated on a major trade route, making it easy for them to say, let's sell him to these traders at a rate that was a typical sale price for a slave in that day. And the irony of this selling this scene, beginning in verse 23, is hard to miss. He's sold to Ishmaelite traders, descendants of the great family tension from back and Abraham playing forward. We're told in verse 25 that the brothers sit down to eat bread while Joseph is left in a pit. When soon in our story it will be Joseph who feeds bread to the whole world. The measure is taken to save Joseph from murder and it will in turn lead to the outcome that actually accomplished Joseph's dreams in the first place. This is all playing out as a full act of the invisible hand of God. But from our perspective in Genesis 37, the end is where this always ends, which is death. Verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit and he saw Joseph was not there and he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone, what am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. The brothers create a believable scenario that Joseph has been killed. Interesting picture here. They attempt to manufacture a covering for sin by slaughtering an animal. Whereas previously in our story in Genesis, it's God who has slaughtered an animal to cover for Adam and Eve's sin way back in Genesis 3. 
They send this message to the Father. The text doesn't tell us, but at least the assumption here, the natural reading of the text, seems to be that they send this ahead with a messenger and a message, proving themselves to be cowards as well as liars. And they rationalize it. Here's a robe we found. Come to your own conclusion, Dad. The coat that was a symbol of love now becomes a marker of death. And ironically, it was Jacob who had betrayed his own father, Isaac, at his brother's expense by wearing a hunter's clothes and the skin of a goat. Payday has truly arrived. And with it comes unceasing mourning. This son of mine is dead. Now we know the story. He's not really dead and we know how this thing is going to come full circle but death at least in Jacob's mind here this will mark the relationship for the next two decades the death of a relationship so track with this progression with me for a minute tension legit tension that sparks hatred that leads to acts of deception that ends in death Have you ever seen that progression play out in your life? I would suggest that with a moment's introspection, we can all recount stories, perhaps present stories, of how that reality has played out in relationships that are currently people we're sitting around and or relationships with family members, former friends. Our perspective, though, doesn't seem to communicate this pattern. If we knew the pattern ahead of time, tension is going to birth hatred, which is going to lead to deception, and it's going to result in death, we would be more likely to avoid it. But our fallen perspective changes the terms of this perspective. We're blinded by our own sin and silliness, And so we create another fourfold progression. Let me suggest it to you. The biblical perspective that we saw in the text from Genesis 37, and now our fallen perspective on the same paradigm. First, we we encounter legit tension. Tension in human relationships. And here, I would define this as real or perceived reasons to be wounded. Our scenarios are different. Most of us are not getting coats from our father. And most of us are not interpreting grain dreams to our brothers and sisters. Our scenarios are different, but they're actually not really. We have, just like in Genesis 37, real reasons to be wounded in relationship. People sin against us. They say hostile things to us. They harm us by making foolish or silly decisions. And to make matters worse, we also have perceived reasons that we get wounded. Sometimes in relational challenges, people don't actually do sinful things. We just interpret them in a way that hurts. I can't believe they. Why do they always? They're just like often assuming the worst in these relationships. 
And what does that tension produce? One of three things. Anger, resentment, or outrage. The language from our passage is hated. And this is what happens in our heart, but the expression from us changes to rationalize it in our minds. Anger. I don't, I don't hate them. I'm just, I'm just ticked at what they did. I'm just mad at their actions. Resentment. They're always like that. I'll just write them off or make a few passive-aggressive jabs. Or outrage. I would suggest that outrage is really just a development of our technological age that's fostered by distance. I'll say things about them or people like them from a distance that I would never say to their face. One wonders what this story would have been like had the brothers had access to Instagram. What's missing in this fallen paradigm is clear, level-headed conversation about what hurt and why it hurt. I'll just sulk in my anger. I'll just mask it by resenting them and telling everybody else how terrible they are. Or I'll just post really bland things that are outrageous online so as to run them down. Tension produces anger, resentment, or outrage that leads to vindictiveness. Vindictiveness. It's the same paradigm that we see in the brothers in the text. I'll get even. I'll even plot with others to get even. You won't believe what such and such said. Have you met my mother-in-law? We try to build a team that agrees with us and our harsh words about people that are on the other side of an issue from us laced with passive-aggressive jabs about them because, well, they just deserved it. And on our worst days, this produces acts of vindictiveness, attempts to get even. Don't pause to consider your own marriage right now. Lastly, we end with division. Division. They've had enough chances. I'm done. End of the relationship. Even if proximity continues, we live divided. It would be stunning for us to consider in this room this morning the number of divided relationships that are represented by all the bodies that are scattered here. The number of times that we've allowed the seeds of tension to produce an end in division, which really is death. We have the language, estrangement. I'm just going to treat them like a stranger. I'm done. No mistake for me that this whole paradigm is embedded in the context of family relationships. It happens in marriage. It happens with children. And sadly, it happens all the time in the church. So is there a better option? 
Is there restored potential for us who are in Christ? Let me suggest that there is, but friends, this one is challenging. It is countercultural, and it is downright costly to get right. The same fourfold progression, I'll run through them quickly. Sin or sin starts this one. Sin or sin. Let me define my terms. Notice that the change doesn't happen here. We still live in a broken world where tension happens. People do boneheaded things. Unless you think it's just them that do boneheaded things, have you tried to live with you? You do them too. What's the basis of this? It's one of two things. Sin, I'll just define it lowercase, S-I-N. These would be the actions, the volitional actions that we do that are sinful. I gossip. I spout off in anger. I lie. Or, capital letter sin, indirect actions that are the result of living in a sin-infested world. I didn't do something specifically, but because the world is broken or messed up and I'm stepping into all these relational dynamics that are also broken and messed up, tension results simply by living in a fallen world. Case in point, some of you that are newly married are going to make plans for where you're going to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas over the next few weeks. Welcome to the chaos, friends. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings. You're not going to show up at the right house at the right time. Somebody else that was supposed to be at the house at the right time is going to be there, and you're not going to be there anymore. And it's going to be combustible Thanksgiving with turkey, right? Why? Why is that? Because we live in a sin-infested world where people get their feelings hurt, where relationships are hard, where brokenness abounds, and unfortunately, where people assume the worst. Something rubs you the wrong way, something's unclear, unhelpful, something's not how you would have done something, and so starts the progression. So where does change happen? It happens at the second step. Self-reflection. Contrast this with anger or hatred at the point of contact. Tension enters my human relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my family dynamics, my coworker, you name it. And rather than letting the breakneck speed of anger or hatred progress, we ask the question, hey, what's the real issue here? How am I contributing to this? Is this something that's really a big deal anyway? If I do need to respond to this, what's the best way to respond to it to give maximum grace and model the love of Christ? Now, what does this moment of self-reflection do for us? It slows us down. It pulls the parking brake on the breakneck speed of anger or hatred in our hearts. And it helps us rightly prioritize the one person that by the Spirit's power we can control, and that is ourself. So we consider, what am I contributing to this scenario? 
And then we pursue. Sin or sin that fosters self-reflection that leads to pursuit. Repentance or ownership of the sources of frustration and the challenges of the relationship. And this is one of the most countercultural realities in our world because it requires proximity and ownership. Two things we don't do well relationally. You can't do this over a text message, and you can't do this by blaming them for all the things that are wrong. It requires a real relationship where you can say things like, hey, I might be wrong in this, but can you help me? Because this hurt. Rather than you always or you never. I wonder how much the heart posture of worship would change for believers if we consider the reality and the action Jesus compels in Matthew 5. You've heard it said to our ancestors, don't murder. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with her brother or sister, with his brother or sister, will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Friends, relational accountability and pursuit is not incidental to our worship of a holy God. We're introduced here to the connectivity, the interconnectedness of our vertical worship to God and our horizontal rightness to people. We cannot, as the later biblical writers are going to exhort us, we cannot run down our brothers and sisters, either publicly or privately, regardless of how we rationalize that in our hearts. And then come and expect our vertical worship to be right. We are to be people of reconciliation. The path, this is the last step, restore potential. Center sin, self-reflection, pursuit, and reconciliation. The life path of a Christian should be marked by far more reconciled relationships than broken ones. Can that be said of you? When's the last time a relationship that was sideways was brought back right because you took ownership of the relationship and pursued it? I don't think it's any surprise for us that twice, Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32 are going to repeat this refrain in the Matt Rogers paraphrased version. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. How? As Christ Jesus has forgiven you. This is the mark of the life of one who has been forgiven. That we are a forgiving, reconciling people. 
And it's no mistake that this will be a driving theme for us throughout the story of Joseph. The question that's going to hover over the next 10 chapters is going to be, how will these relationships be reconciled? How will they be reconciled? It's no wonder that one of Paul's favorite images for the beauty of the gospel is this very theme. Consider the famous words from Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for rarely would someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we've been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So do you see what Paul, the point Paul is making? That while you were an enemy, while you were running breakneck pace away from God, he, in his love, purposed Christ as a means whereby enemies could become friends of God. That he did not expect you to clean up your act, to earn your way back into his saving graces, but rather he ran in pursuit of you through Christ. That while we were enemies, we have been reconciled, made right enemies friends consider that picture for a moment you can be a friend of god friends with god why because we have a god who is on mission to reconcile enemies and make them his friends and then those who have been made his friends should, in patterning their lives by the Spirit's power after the work of the great reconciler, be marked as a people who are giving themselves to relational reconciliation every chance they get. Friends, it is impossible for you to break the fallen paradigm apart from the activity of the Spirit in your soul. You are hopeless and helpless to do it. You need a picture for why you need Jesus. Look no further than how hard human relationships are. Apart from a gospel paradigm that says, I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven. May the beauty of the gospel inspire us to live lives that are on edge in pursuit. Such that enemies become friends by the power of the gospel. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we think about how deeply we need your help in this area. We, we think about how messy relationships are in this world. We think about how messy we are and how hard we are to love. 
And we give you great praise that while we who know you, while we were your, your enemies, you in love came and reconciled us. You, you took us from being enemies and made us friends. Father, we ask that by the Spirit's power, the wake of our life would leave a trail, not of relational casualty, but relational connection. Would by virtue of the Spirit's activating work in our life, would we be self-giving, pursuing, sacrificial, forgiving people? Knowing that that is going to pattern for our families, for our church, and for a watching world the way that you love us in Christ. Father, would you burden us this afternoon for just simple steps of obedience that, that this sermon would have feet and that as parents are trying to discipline their children this afternoon, that they would be able to point to the truth of a reconciling God. That as marriages may be sideways, that this afternoon steps would be taken to restore, to make right, to own sin, to confess, to pursue one another. That a church, and as with any church, that divided relationships would be restored because we're people who leave gifts on the altar and go and make things right and then come back and worship. And even, even now as we sing opportunities to, to pray together and to minister to one another, would the beauty of a reconciling God compel us to be reconciling people? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.